So we've been looking at the whole theme uh, of Philippians, uh, which is all about joy. And Paul is writing to really indicate each chapter. He's indicating, you know, some things that might rob us of joy, some things that might get in the way of us truly walking in that joy. In chapter one, you'll recall that the secret of joy in spite of circumstances is having that single mind, that mind like Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In chapter two, we saw that the secret of joy in spite of people, because people, as you know, can be at times joy robbers. Not here in this group, but elsewhere maybe they might be joy robbers. But the secret of joy in spite of people is having the submissive mind. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, to look out not only for your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Seek to serve other people. Well, now in chapter 3 here, we continue on with this theme of what might rob us of joy. In chapter 3, we're seeing that the secret of joy in spite of things is having now the spiritual mind because we all know that there are things that can come into our lives that we begin to focus on maybe a little bit you know um, detrimental to our health and growth things that we get fixated on that we get busy with that begin to dominate and begin to be the things that we're kind of living for and so Paul now in chapter 3 is going to break down some of these things that maybe we might find ourselves living for or being confident in to direct us now to go, here's what the spiritual mind actually looks like and is so that we can live in a manner that is glorifying Christ, that is about Christ to where it just again causes our joy to increase all the more. So in chapter three, we're seeing Paul's past perspective. We're gonna see Paul's present priority and then Paul's future promise. That's the breakdown in chapter three. We're only gonna get to the first one of these here today. And so as we go through those first 11 verses, we're looking at here the caution that Paul gives us, the credentials. We're gonna look at Paul's kind of pedigree and all the things that he's achieved. We're gonna see the cost that Paul is willing to lay down and calling us all to the cost and then the confidence. That's how we're gonna break down this chapter. But look at verse one with me here. As we look at this caution, he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. So what does Paul say finally? Like any good pastor, right? Who's kind of winding down their message. He wants to throw out, you know, in conclusion. And those of you that have been in the church for a while, you recognize and know, oh, that word conclusion simply means he's going to go on for about another 20, 25 minutes here, right? This the guy has no intention of wrapping things up. He's just kind of giving that to us as a bit of false hope here, right? Paul's no different, right? He's kind of throwing this other finally. He's only halfway through his letter. He's like, finally. But you see, Paul's not using that term finally as though he's like wrapping things up and he's coming to conclusion he's, he's writing this to speak kind of furthermore listen I want to build on the things that I've been I've been speaking about I want to add to that furthermore here's some things that we can put into practice and that's how Paul is is speaking that word here finally he's going to use that word finally again in chapter 4 verse 8 when he's actually coming kind of to the close of his message there and wrapping things up in this, in this letter. But you see, Paul knows here now the importance of, of reminding us of certain things. Now, what he says, finally, furthermore, he's adding and repeating now, rejoice in the Lord. That's been the whole theme of Philippians, right? Rejoice in the Lord. How we're to be those as believers 
that are, are living our lives with just complete joy. And notice, it's rejoice in the Lord. Because if you're not rejoicing in the Lord, that joy is going to be very fleeting, isn't it? Because there's a lot of things that we can find. Again, as we're going to see in this chapter, the secret of joy in spite of things is a spiritual mind. There's a lot of things that we can find to add to our lives, to bring into our lives that we think are going to bring joy for us. This is what's really going to make me happy. But if it's things that are separate from or apart from the Lord, all those things are very fleeting, right? You can, you can get a new car. And you can drive off that lot and you can be pretty excited, right? And then you drive that thing home and your kid is like driving out the driveway on their bike and all of a sudden turns into that car, boom, scratches it up. Suddenly that joy, that new car is quickly fleeting, right? It's like, ah! And now your emotions are, are the complete opposite of joy, right? And there are things that can happen that can quickly rob us of our joy if we're placing joy in things that are apart from the Lord. Why is it important that Paul says rejoice in the Lord? Because when we're rejoicing in him, our fountain of joy is unending. He is unchanging. Nothing changes with the Lord. And so if he's the source of our joy, that is a fountain that's never gonna run dry. That's why in Nehemiah we read that the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's what's gonna keep us going, keep us strengthened in the Lord when we joy in him. When we find that which brings pleasure to the Lord and we operate in that way, it's gonna be a joy that never runs out. And when we recognize all that he's done for us, there's reason for us to joy in Jesus because he's the one that's saved us and given us life ultimately. You remember in, in, in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus sends out the disciples, not just the 12, but he sent out the 70 that were with him and following him, right? Sends out the 70 to go and do works of the Lord. And they all return to Jesus and says that they're excited, they're pumped because they've been seeing great things happening. They've been seeing people delivered to demons. They've been seeing people healed. They're like, Lord, oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe what we've just been doing. And they're so excited. What does Jesus say to them? He says in Luke 10, verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You see, when we as believers recognize that we're saved, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done, that we are secure in salvation and eternal life, that when this life breathes its last, we're gonna be with him in heaven. That's what should be causing us to joy in him every single day. We get to wake up every day going, you know what, no matter what happens today, my name's written in, in heaven. My name's written in that Lamb's book of life to where I know I'm gonna be with him for all of eternity. So regardless of what goes on today or next week, these things are so temporal and they're fleeting and this is just a blip in, in the scope of eternity. I have something far greater to be placing my joy in. I'm, I'm in Jesus today, and one day I'm gonna be with him forever. My name's written in heaven. That's what we joy in. That's what brings permanence for us. So Paul is writing, and he's like, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious. He's, he's repeating himself, which again, is, is often something we need. You know, as, as a pastor, it can be very tempting to sit here and go, Man, I gotta come up with something new for these people. They've heard me, you know, for years, and I gotta be sure that I'm not giving the same message or I'm not saying the same things. And it can be very tempting to think, I gotta come up with something new, right? But I, I've since realized that there's just, that's not necessary. I just have like three messages that I just repeat 
all the time. And I hope that you're forgetting, you know, by three weeks time, which is usually the case for us. You know, we just were like, that sounds familiar. I'm like, oh, that's strange. That sounds familiar. I've never said that before. But no, that's not the case. But it can be tempting to think we got to come up with new, new stuff. But here's the great thing, you know. You know, God, he repeats himself often. He's saying the same thing oftentimes in the Word because he knows how much we need to be reminded of those things and keep that on repeat for us. So he's like, man, I'm going to say this two, three, 400 times because I know for you guys, it's going to take that much time for it to really sink in and settle down into your hearts to where this now becomes something that you're not just being told, but something that you are recognizing the importance of personally for you. Peter himself would say in 2 Peter 1:12, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Peter says, I know you know this. I know you're established in the, in the present truth, but I'm going to keep sharing these things because we just need the simplicity of that truth here that we have and be reminded it is simple. This is not complicated. I'm going to keep saying the same things to you in a way that it really becomes that which is settled down in your heart and, and personable for you. So Paul knows, again, himself, important to repeat these things. And, and what does he say at the end of verse one there? He says, for you, it's safe. It's like Paul's saying, this is a safeguard for you. I know this is what's going to keep you walking in the truth and not veering off, not getting pulled into other things, as we're going to see is very possible because there are people that are out there that want to twist the truth, that want to corrupt the truth, that want to add ever so slightly to the truth to where it becomes no longer the truth. And so Paul wants to bring this as a safeguard and caution us. Look at what he says in verse two. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Now you're reading that, you're going, what is Paul talking about here? Beware of dogs, right? Now, we look at that and we go, why would dogs are so nice or so cuddly and friendly? Why would we want to beware of dogs? Well, Paul's using this term in, in a very you know, strong, almost derogatory term, which it was in that day. Because in this day, people would see dogs roaming the street that were very wild and they were very dirty. They weren't pleasant. They'd be carrying disease. And you'd see them coming in a pack. People out on the streets would be like, oh man, I'm, I'm getting to the other, I'm getting into, I'm getting inside somewhere. I'm going to protect myself from these dogs because they were not like we have them today where we've in our, in our Western mindset, North America, we, we take dogs in, they're our pets, you know, we, we dress them up, we take them everywhere we go. We're at a restaurant, we're sitting down, we're taking them to dog spas. It's like, man, I wouldn't mind some of that myself, right? But, you know, we just pamper dogs in this day for if Paul could have had a, a foresight into the, you know, 21st century and see how dogs have been treated, he'd be like, what is the matter with those people? They're nuts. But see, we got to get out of that mind. Like when you go to Mexico today, we, we take, you know, mission trips down to Mexico. You go to Mexico today, and, and it's, it's the same thing like what, what Paul's addressing. Dogs are all over the place in Mexico. They're wild and they're dirty. And you get people coming to Mexico for the first time like, oh, look at all these free dogs. Rose. Come, can I take myself? And like, come on, come on. We're like, no, get away from that thing. Get away or else we're setting you home because that's gonna, you're going to catch something with that dog, right? Like, stay away from that. But there are so many dogs in Mexico just wild. They've begun to use dogs to make coats now for people. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing what you can train animals to do these days. It's quite remarkable. But, yeah, I know, right? 
I didn't get a lot of traction on that in the first two services. I was hoping the third service maybe get a little more traction on that. But this is what Paul's saying here. He's like, beware dogs. Now, that term dogs was used by Jews to refer to Gentiles. They looked at the Gentiles as dogs. They were dirty. They were mangy. You just didn't want, you didn't want anything to do with them. So who's Paul talking about here? Beware of dogs. He's speaking of a group known as the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were people that would come in and they were Jewish, but they said, listen, we don't mind this whole Jesus business. You can have your Jesus, but you also need to still adhere to, you know, the Old Testament laws. You need to adhere to Judaism and all the traditions we've built up. You can have Jesus, but you've also got to add all this other stuff. And so Paul flips this around now as these Jews were people that left to call other people dogs. He flips around on them and says, beware of these dogs, these Judaizers that are, are changing, corrupting and adding to the simplicity of the gospel. And they're robbing you of the simplicity of the joy that you have. They were evil workers. They would come into the church after Paul was there in certain church. They would come in kind of nipping at his heels saying, oh man, Paul, you can't listen to that guy. He's got this whole grace thing. Man, that is just so wrong. No, you got to work. For your salvation you got to earn you got to please god by what you do and they were changing everything they were evil workers he says they were of the mutilation here now and that is implying this teaching that you had to be circumcised as of course abraham was circumcised and that became a kind of covenant sign with god's people israel and so these Judaizers came in and said, listen, you Gentiles getting saved, hey, we're happy for you, but you know what? You need to bring yourself under Judaism. You need to get circumcised if you're really gonna be right with God. And so again, they began just to mutilate the simplicity of the gospel. Not only the simplicity of the gospel, but they were putting heavy burdens on people to be right with God. That's what religion does, isn't it? Religion simply comes along and says, you know what? You need to do this you need to do that, you need to follow this, you need to adhere to that, and it puts unrealistic burdens on people that people cannot live up to. But that's not the way with Christianity. Christianity separates itself from all the religions by saying the work's been done for you. There's nothing you can add to it. There's no way that you can perfect upon it. It is all complete in Jesus Christ. That's why we can just joy in him because the work is finished, it's complete, it's done. Paul says all these other things don't matter. He would write in Galatians 6, 15, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. That's the work that the Lord does in you to save you and make you right with God. That's not found through any other thing that you can do or apply to your life. And so Paul says, beware of these dogs, these, these Judaizers that are changing and adding and corrupting the gospel. Paul says this in verse three. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. You see, Jesus comes and he turns everything around. Paul says the people that are truly right with God, that are truly seen as the circumcised are those that have that happen not in an outward way, but in an inward way. That's what Paul was desiring to show here. It's those who worship God in the spirit that have had an internal work done in their lives to save them. It's what Jesus said in John 4, verse 23 to 24, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. 
God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, circumcision is, is not to be a hard work. It's meant to be a heart work. That's what Paul would say in Romans 2, verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart. It's in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men but from God. See, Paul is saying this work that God has always designed circumcision to be, yes, it was in the Old Testament, an outward sign, a covenant that was made between God and his people, but that was always meant to be a deeper work that God wanted to do in an internal way, where it was not a cutting away the flesh outwardly, it was a cutting away the flesh inwardly, that sin nature, that old person, to where Jesus would make you new by the Spirit. And so Paul says, we're the circumcision now that come and worship God in the spirit or as some translations would say, who worship by the spirit. Worship God by the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. You see, we're not following some man-devised religion or some kind of works-based gospel. We're simply putting our trust in Jesus, we're seeing that he's done it all for us. And to where now we simply rejoice in Christ Jesus that our righteousness is not found in and through ourselves and what we do, but our righteousness is found in Christ Jesus. So we rejoice in Christ Jesus, he says. And if you're rejoicing in what Christ has done for you and resting in that finished work he's accomplished, then stop thinking that by your works. You're gonna add to that or you're going to be made better or that you're going to please God more by your works or have greater favor with God by your works. Paul says, and have no confidence in the flesh. Stop thinking that by your effort and by your works, you're going to improve on those things. See, this becomes something that our, our human nature continually likes to try to default to, where we feel like I've got to contribute to something good that happens to me. I've got to, I've got to kind of pay it back, right? You, you know what that's like when somebody comes and they give you something, they give you a gift, and you're like, oh my goodness, that was so nice of them. Now I've got to give something back to them. Oh, and you're lying awake at night like, oh my goodness, maybe if I just bake some cookies and give it to them, that's going to that's gonna help, that'll be enough, you know? And we're always thinking like, how do I, I've got to pay this back now. To the point sometimes when somebody gives you something, you're like, oh great, now I've got to... You see, grace is something that we oftentimes wrestle with, isn't it? To where we can just freely receive something. I'm still working on that. I, I need you to help me. Just, you know, try me, bring stuff for me, give things to me so that I can learn to practice that grace. But you see, that's what we oftentimes default to is we got to pay back, and, and it's no different with salvation. We're like, thank you, Lord, that you've done the work, but now I've got I've to maintain that favor with God. I've got to maintain that. Listen, God never did any of that because you were worthy or deserving. And he's the one, like Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that continues to work out that salvation. That he began a good work, and you will be faithful to complete it till the day of Christ Jesus. He's at work in you. We saw that last week in chapter 2, verse 13. As God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. It's God that does that work in us. He's, he's the one that's supplying all that we need. And we just simply continue to abide in him. 
and, and seek to live these lives, not because we're trying to earn our way, but we live these lives for him because we know it's the best way. There's no greater way than just living in Christ and for him. And yeah, no doubt that, you know, as James says, that faith without works is dead, but we don't work for our salvation. Our works simply prove that we're saved. You, and you need to be the one that gauges how that looks because, again, you can look at that and go, well, my works are helping me be right with God. That's never the case. Your works are simply done because you're saying, God has done it all for me. God is so good. I'm so thankful. I want to live my, I want to devote my life for him. I'm, I'm that sacrifice now poured out to the Lord, which is my good and reasonable services, Romans 12 uh, verse 2 tells us, that it's reasonable because of the mercy he's shown us, because of the grace he's given us, because of that forgiveness of sins, because he's done it all for us. Now, I, I, I get to live my life for him. It's like when my wife comes along and does something good, you know, and blesses me, she's not always doing it so that I would return the favor. It's like maybe 95% of the time, but there's that 5% of the time where she just does it out of the goodness of her heart. And, and my response is not, oh, I gotta, it's like, man, I, I wanna bless her because she's such a blessing to me. She's so good to me. She's so, I just, wanna, I just wanna bless her. That's how it should be with the Lord in this loving relationship with him that we just respond out of love, out of joy because of what he's done for me, not out of duty. It should never be duty. It should always be just devotionally given to the Lord as we just live for him and experience the blessed life he's given us here. So don't think that you can add to it. Many people try to add to that idea of salvation by by saying, well, it's Jesus and it's, you know, serving other people. It's Jesus and going on missions trips. It's Jesus and making sure you do your recycling properly, separating the paper from the tin and stuff like that. And I say, if I do all these things and I do them right, then I'm gonna, you know, pave my way to salvation. It's not in those things at all. It's simply by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Plain and simple. He's done it all and we rest in that. So Paul says, don't think that you can add to what Christ has accomplished for you. That's why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. The way of salvation is complete in him alone. Now, if anyone did have any reason to be confident in the flesh and to think that I'm earning my way to, to, to heaven or to salvation, if anybody had, had reason to be confident in those things, it'd be Paul. But look at what he lays out for us now as he lays out these credentials of his in verse four. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. See, Paul's gonna give his religious resume for us here. He's not gonna do it to boast or brag in these things. He's doing it to show that in the flesh, he had more going for him than any of these Judaizers did and basically anybody else that thought that they were appeasing God by lies, he had even more to, to boast in if he chose to do that, but that's not the case. He's simply laying this out to show it, it, it can't be by our own works or, or efforts or things done that's gonna make us right with God. So he goes on now to show these things in verse five. He says, listen, I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law I'm a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So Paul lays out all these things that he's really been kind of confident in, his credentials, 
He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. That was the day that God had, had instructed for all Jewish parents to bring their, their newborn uh, son on the eighth day to be circumcised. That was the day when that was the least kind of uh, uh, difficult or painful. It was um, the, the best time to do it, God's grace right there. But Paul says, I, I, this isn't something I've been brought into at a later time, right? I didn't get brought into Judaism down the road. I was circumcised the eighth day. I've been brought up in this. I've got Jewish parents. We are, are through and through Jew. He says, I'm of the stock of Israel. Again, uh, he traces his lineage all the way back to Abraham. He's not married into this. He didn't convert to this later on. I'm of the stock of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, he says. And the tribe of Benjamin had uh, held a, a position of of great favor. Out of Benjamin came the first king of Israel, King Saul, which many people believe that Paul or Saul was named after. Um, and then it's the tribe of Benjamin that showed loyalty to the, the tribe of Judah in 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 the, the you know, house of David when the kingdom was divided. So the tribe of Benjamin held a special place. Paul says, man, I've, I've come from that tribe. He says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, Paul says, man, I, I, if you cut me, I'm bleeding Jewish blood, like pure. And, and you see, in, in that time too, Paul's writing this, that there were Jews that were kind of beginning to assimilate at times with the culture that was around them. That's why when you hear the Hellenistic Jews, they were Jews that sort of adapted a lot of the Greek culture around them. Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I have not sort of compromised in any way. I am through and through again, pure Jew here. And concerning the law, I'm a Pharisee or was a Pharisee. Now that's the group that meticulously sought to observe and follow scriptures and it started off very well they wanted to uphold God's law they didn't want this to get corrupted in any way they wanted to be sure that they were following it to the letter but then that became a very prideful thing for many of them the Pharisees began to boast in all these things and kind of hold themselves above other people to the point where Jesus had to say you're a bunch of hypocrites because yes, you're following the law to the letter in certain ways, like by tithing according to your spices. They'd have their spice rack, and they're like, oh, well, I gotta make sure I give my 10% to the Lord. And they're out there like with a you know, fine-tooth comb, and they're dividing up their spices, and Jesus is saying, you're troubling yourself over all that, and yet you're forsaking some of the greater weight of the law and some of the more you know, heart issues of the law. And so the Lord had to call them on that be. They were hypocrites, and so they'd gotten away from, again, just observing and following the law to make this about them to some degree. So Paul says, concerning the law, though, I was a Pharisee. I held to the law strongly concerning zeal, persecuting the church. I mean, that's, you can't get much more zealous than that, where you are out there, and you're, like, arresting other Christians. You're taking them into prison, some of them being, being um, you know, martyred for their faith under under Paul's order, Paul says, man, I was zealous. And, and in his mind, it was zealous for God. He thought he was doing God a favor by doing that. He thought, these Christians, man, they're changing everything. They've gone away from what God has for us. In his world. And they, he thought he was doing them a favor. So he went and out of zeal, began to persecute the church. And concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he says, blameless. Now you might look at that and you go, Wow. How could he even say that? And it's not that Paul's saying, I was sinlessly perfect, that I had no fault. But he said, if you looked at my life, the things that I did kind of on an outward level concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, I was adhering to it. 
He lived a life where you, you could not come up to him and say, hey, Paul, you should have done that better. Or, or you kind of failed there. He says, man, I've, I've upheld the law. See, outwardly, he thought he was. And it wasn't until inwardly, as he tells us in Romans, when he began to see his own covetousness that he realized he was breaking the law. That was something that he only saw when it was, again, matched up to that internal working of his heart. Otherwise, on an outward level, he's like, man, I'm blameless. Nobody that could come and accuse him of anything. See, if you were to measure someone up against Paul, he'd be able to run circles around them. He's like, man, you ain't got nothing on me. Look at my life. Look at how I've lived. If anybody could say they're righteous by what they've done, Paul says, I'm the one. But you see, Paul had the wrong measuring stick. When Paul finally had his encounter with Jesus on that road to Damascus, he began to see his unworthiness. He began to see his own sin. And he realized he was putting the emphasis in all the wrong things. His confidence was in a faulty foundation. Look at what he says next here in verse seven, as he begins to kind of count the cost now. He says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. And, and Paul literally is doing a bit of accounting here, that term gain in the Greek is kind of like an accounting term where he's saying, He's got his ledger, right? And his profit and loss columns. And he's got all these things placed in the profit column. All these things he's just laid out for us here in verses five and six. He's got all those things laid out in the profit columns. He's like, look at all these things here. But then when he brings Christ in the picture, he's like, all those things that I once counted as profit, as good, and I've had to move that over to the loss column because I've begun to see that next to Christ, those things have no value to it. And it's not that Christ is adding value to Paul's life. Paul's realizing that, that Christ is the value. There's nothing greater than Christ. He doesn't just add value. He makes life valuable because our whole value is found in him and in him alone. Everything that Paul was putting so much confidence in prior to meeting Christ has suddenly amounted to nothing. Worthless, valueless now. In Paul's eyes, he says in verse eight, yet indeed I, I count all things lost for the excellence and the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. See, Paul looked at all the things that he had accomplished and achieved and yet when compared to the life he now has in Christ and through Christ, he says all those things are, are just like garbage. He says, I count them as rubbish. That word for rubbish is literally, if you go back to the old King James, it's like just a pile of dung. It's like human waste. It's pretty gross. That's how Paul saw all those things. See, he'd been living a life of do, 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 do. I gotta do this, gotta do that. And now he's seen that this is all just a bunch of doo-doo. It really is equal to just waste. All the things I've been living for, striving for, putting my confidence in, thinking that this is making me more right in God's eyes, I began to see that it had no value and it was worthless in comparison to what I now have in and through Christ. In fact, he says, it's all found in Christ. And notice he says, I count all things lost. He's not looking at some things going, well, there's some good with that. Oh, I like some of that. I'm gonna keep some of that. He says, I count all things as lost because the only value that we can have for our lives comes from and is found in Christ. 
says, I count all things lost for the excellence now of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom everything else has become a loss. I like what Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 24 to 25, if anyone desires to come after me, then deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is Paul's heart right now, saying, I've given up everything. I've counted everything as lost. Why? So that I might truly find the life that I can have in Christ now. I love what Jim Elliott, that great martyred missionary says when he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And if you're willing to count the cost and say, I'm willing to surrender everything to the Lord, to give over what you cannot keep, but then find that you gain something you can never lose. That's the life in Christ that we have. That's what Paul is finding and experiencing right now. And he says in verse nine, he says, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. See, a wonderful legal transaction took place on the cross. Where Jesus came, he gave himself so freely and willingly for us. He says, I'm gonna take all of your sin. I'm gonna take that upon myself and I'm gonna face the judgment of God that you deserve, but I'm gonna take that for you. I'm gonna have your sins judged so that now I can give you my righteousness. That's the great exchange. He takes all of our sin and he gives us all of his righteousness. So that now, like Paul says, that I might not have a righteousness that's of my own, that's from the law, but that I might have a righteousness which is from God by faith. See, that righteousness is applied to you when you acknowledge your sin and you acknowledge that, man, I can't, I can't be right with God on my own. I'm a sinner, separate from God, I need help. And when you confess your sin and you repent, you turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to be the one that forgives me and cleanses me. When you pray that, when you receive by faith that, you now receive his righteousness. And it's completely by grace through faith and found in Christ. There's no other way. Paul acknowledges that now. It's that great exchange like what, what Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He allowed his son Jesus to take our sin so that we could receive his righteousness. There's no better deal that you'll ever find. It's given to you freely by grace. Have you received that today? Have you stopped striving? Have you stopped trying to earn your way? Because like I said, we so easily default back to that. Or we think God's gonna be really happy with me if I read my Bible more, if I pray more, if I go to church regularly. That's, I, I, there's no way that God will be able to deny me if I do those things. And we can easily slip into that mentality thinking that we're contributing or earning our way that God can't refuse us now. Listen, it's only through you receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior and standing in his righteousness that you have access to God. It's not found by your works. Paul says, oh, that I not have my own righteousness, 
but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God. It's by that alone. And now look at the confidence that Paul has here in verse 10. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul's desire is what? It's to know Christ now. And, and understand Paul sees the opportunity he has to know Christ. And when he says that I might know Christ, he uses this word in the Greek for know, which is ginoskos, which means not just a head knowledge, not just knowing about somebody, it's truly knowing Christ. It's being in, in a personal, intimate relationship with the living God. That's what Paul says, that I might know Christ, that I might know him. See, some of you might be very good at knowing about God. You can explain theology, you can quote scripture, but again, God's not so much interested in that. He's interested in, do you have a relationship with me? Do you know me? Are you, are you walking in that intimate fellowship and communion with me? That's where, where Jesus would say in John 17, verse three, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus likens this to eternal life, that they may know you. Again, have that personal, intimate relationship with the living God that comes through Jesus Christ. Are you enjoying a knowledge of Jesus like that? Has your understanding of Christ just been very academic and kind of head knowledge so far? Or have you entered into that intimate, personal relationship with Jesus? Because that's what God has done for you. That's why he sent his son, is that you could experience not just eternal life, but that you might experience life now and have that blessing of intimate personal relationship by which, again, that fountain of joy just continues on and on. Paul says, and, and not just that I would know him and the power of his resurrection. We're all, we're all quick to pray that, Lord, I want to know the power of your resurrection. But look what Paul says, and, and the fellowship of his sufferings. We like to skip over that. We're like, eh, just keep it about the resurrection, please. We're the fellowship of his sufferings, but Paul is understanding something here. Understanding something that maybe you've come to experience for yourself. That when you go through a difficulty, a hardship, when you go through a pain, a tragedy, and you encounter those that have gone through that same thing, there's an, kind of an instant bond. There's kind of that instant fellowship that you understand each other. And, and Paul says, oh, that I might know that fellowship of his sufferings because, you understand, Jesus, you gave it all up for us. You suffered like nobody has suffered. And Lord, I know that when I go through suffering, it's only gonna cause me to know you in a greater way. Because it's oftentimes you're suffering too that what do we do? We call out to the Lord all the more, right? When life is going good, we're all like cruising through life. We're like, hey, things are great. Hallelujah. I should maybe pray today. Oh, I'll get to that later. Things are just great. You know, we're just cruising along. Everything's great. But the minute difficulty comes, we're like, Lord, I need you. Help me. And we're calling out to him and we're pressing in with him in a, in a way that we may be normally don't. We're pressing in and we're, we're growing in him. We're, we're seeking him. We're finding him. Paul says that I might know the fellowship of his sufferings so that I might be conformed to his death. 
Paul realizes that when we go through those things, the Lord's at work in us. He's not forsaken us. He's working in us. He's refining us. He's strengthening us. Refining us so that there might be less of us. That we might be conformed even to his death. That we might die to self. And guess what happens when we're dying to self? Look at what he says at the end, verse 11. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This isn't something Paul's like kind of if I may attain. Maybe that, no, he's realizing this is the reality for us. You see, there, there is no resurrection unless there's a death. Paul says, Lord, I want to experience the fellowship of your sufferings that I might be conformed to his death so that I may experience in a greater way just that resurrection power at work in my life. This is the way that the Lord works in us and through us. Many times we've not experienced the glorious resurrected life because we have shied away from the sufferings. We shied away from placing our life on the altar. We shied away from saying, Lord, I need to die to self. But may we, like Paul, become like Christ in his death so as to attain to that resurrection. May that not just be a future hope for us. May that be a present reality as we walk in the power of his life and enjoy enjoying him, experiencing that fullness of joy, rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in Jesus Christ, the one that's done it all for us and has invited us in now to experience his life, his blessing, his favor, his righteousness for us. All right, let's pray. Worship team, if you're still around, yeah, you guys can come and Listen, before we pray, if you're here, maybe you're watching online today or you're, you're with us and, and maybe you're sitting here saying, man, I haven't really encountered that life. I've been, I've been doing a lot of working for favor with God and I've never heard that it's done, that it's by me just putting my faith in Jesus by which I am saved. And if you're sitting here today and you've been striving and doing so in a burdensome way, never feeling like you're quite making it, I want to give you that good news today. God knew that you couldn't do it on your own. God knew that you'd never do enough, that you'd never reach that place of being right with God on your own and by your own efforts. That's why God sent his son Jesus to come and die on a cross to be the one, the perfect one, that could take your sin and take the judgment of God so that you could be forgiven. He died and he rose again to secure life for us. And our life now, our salvation comes by us putting our faith and trust in Jesus. And in that alone, we're saying, I'm no longer going to trust in my ability. I'm going to trust in what Jesus has done for me. And if you've never done that, you've never secured yourself, you've never been in a place where you've been assured of your salvation and of eternal life that can change in a heartbeat right today by simply acknowledging your sin and saying, Jesus, I need forgiveness. I need salvation. I want to put my trust in you. I want to live for you. I want your life to be my life. And if you pray and ask Jesus to come and forgive you of your sin and, and, and just to be your Lord and Savior, the Bible says he'll do it. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, the Bible says. So if you haven't done that or you're not assured of your salvation, call it to Jesus and receive it by faith. It's a work of grace, meaning you don't earn it. It's given to you freely. The best gift we'll ever get. Call it to Jesus today. Invite him in to be your Lord and Savior. Ask for that forgiveness of sin and know that when you do, you become a child of God, a new creation. Old things have passed away, build all things have become new. That's what Jesus does 
for us. Receive them today. So Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the life that you've given us, the life that you are to us, the righteousness that we're now clothed in because of you. Lord, we're so blessed and we're so thankful. And I pray, as we've seen in your word today, that we would live, Lord, now with confidence in you and in you alone, knowing that our righteousness is found in you. And like Paul said, may we walk, Lord, in the power of your resurrection, even experiencing the fellowship of suffering so that we might be conformed to your death, but also that we might attain to that great resurrected life. Lord, we know that that's the byproduct of all this. And so I pray that we'd experience that. And as we do, may our joy in you just increase. So we ask this now in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's close here with this song. Mm-hmm.